0: World Cup Road Trip is supported by SupersimpleCards.com. Get 12 cards for only $38. All shipping is free. SupersimpleCards.com with the offer code WORLDCUP. The Russians
1: have landed.
0: Welcome to the World Cup road trip once again. Francis Leach with you. Tony Wilson still on the road from Hungary, but in a moment, Simon Hill, Fox Sports, the voice of football, is going to tell us about his World Cup love affair. Welcome to your first World Cup as a fan, not in the commentary box, or is it your first World Cup as a fan?
2: Yeah, actually, it's my second as a fan. I, I went in two thousand and two as a supporter. Um, with a friend of mine, so he went through the, the FIFA ballot system for the tickets. I don't know, I'm pretty sure that still exists. Uh, and he got us tickets to, to follow Senegal and Costa Rica around Korea. So, of course, that was at the time that Paolo Wanchot was playing for Man City. So I just wore my City top at all the Costa Rican games and they loved me. So, yeah, it's but it, it, this is a, a departure for me and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's something, you know, very different. It's interesting, uh, you and I both had the great privilege of calling uh, a lot of sport and being in the commentary box. And
0: you can... You can have a very different experience as a commentator where you become a little bit <coughs> removed from the moment because you have to deliver on describing it and in a way become a bit more measured in it. Now you get to just be in the moment and go with whatever emotion takes
2: your fancy. Yeah, which is a nice privilege because I don't, I don't get its probably the same as you. Too many opportunities to, to watch games as a fan and just uh, you know, let it all out, abuse the referee and <laughs> <laughs> boo a player or cheer a player. <laughs> Uh, so it's nice. I actually think that uh, you know it's pretty similar for players as well as commentators and reporters. I think World Cups are uh, are there really to be enjoyed mainly by supporters. Uh, you know, every footballer that I've spoken to who's played at a World Cup, uh, obviously they enjoy the experience because it's you know they're the culmination often of a, of a lifetime. Uh, Toil to, to get to that moment, but they're a bit closeted away from supporters and all the hype, and and you know we're the same in 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 the media world because we have to cover what the players are doing. So. I think it's nice to experience what the fans uh, are going to enjoy about this World Cup. You know, the, the, the going to the stadium, the anticipation of the game, uh, the hype and, and everything else that goes with it. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope so anyway.
0: What's your first World Cup memory as, as a kid growing up, football mad kid in, in the north of England? What, what are your early memories as a as a follower of the game of World Cups? Uh, the,
2: the strange thing was, that I, I suppose that I was born in 67, so I... I remember very vaguely the 74 World Cup. I, I wasn't really aware of that yet. Uh, so my first one really was the 1978 World Cup. Uh, and of course, as an Englishman, that uh, that corresponded with uh, our failure to reach both the 74 and the 78 World Cup. So uh, most people in Britain were behind the Scots. Um, and Scotland, of course, went to the World Cup with huge expectation. If you remember Ali McLeod, Ali's army, uh, they were going to win the World Cup. And, uh, you know, they had some great players, to be fair, Kenny. Del Dalglish, Archie Gemmell, Joe Jordan, Gordon McQueen, uh, Graeme Souness. And they got beaten in the group stage yeah. by one of our opponents in this particular World Cup, Peru. Yeah, well that's one of my earliest memories is uh, Teofilo Kubias, who scored a wonderful free kick with the outside of his right boot, uh, went the wrong side of the wall, if you can picture that, and completely deceived Alan Ruff uh, in the Scotland goal. Uh, So Scotland left very disappointed, they drew 1-1 with Iran uh, had Willie Johnston sent home for, for taking a banned anabolic steroid. It all went, you know, really pear-shaped for them. And then, of course, in, in typical Scottish fashion, and I can say this because I've got Scottish heritage going way back, uh, so I do sort of, you know, look out for them. But uh, in the final game, they, they produced one of the finest performances ever and, and beat the Dutch by three goals to two with Archie Gemmel scoring that incredible goal. Still on YouTube, I think. You can find it.
0: It's amazing, isn't it, the World Cup, because it's such a sprint. It's three games, not a full season, so it can go right in a way as it did for Australia in 2006, and if you're in form and and you hit the ground running, you can have the most amazing experience, but if you get it wrong at the start, I mean, it's a bit like a Formula One race. If you're stuck on the grid, you're stuffed, And, and that's part of the drama of a World Cup because it seems every heartbeat, every
2: moment matters. Well, as we saw four years later in South Africa, I mean... You know, Australia got four points in South Africa, the same as they did in Germany 2006. But what killed them was the fact that, that you know we got dropped by the Germans four nil in the first game. So you know, if you, if you get off to that sort of a start, then you're playing catch up big time, not just in terms of points, but your goal difference, uh, and that's what killed Australia ultimately in, in 2010. So it is important to get a good start, or at least not lose. If you're going to lose, don't lose too heavily. And obviously that's, I wouldn't say the fear, but that's what we've got to be mindful of in that first game against France because they're a good side. You know, they're, they're as good as the Germans in 2010. So um, if it's not going to be a win, and obviously we hope it is, or a draw, then have got to make sure we don't lose too heavily.
0: We're in Moscow, we're in this, the Hotel Salute, which uh, is uh, in one of the residential areas of Moscow. How would you describe the decor at this table, we're sitting here enjoying a cool drink on a Moscow afternoon, uh, when you look around on that plush purple couch that you're sitting on with the press studs and the, and the, and the little uh, water feature in the hall amongst the black marble and gold trimming?
2: Well, you, we were just talking about the 1978 <laughs> World Cup, and uh, it puts me in mind of the Bee Gees and Saturday Night Fever and uh, flared trousers and Kipper ties, <laughs> but you know what, well, this is all part of the experience, isn't it? It's going to a different part of the world and, and seeing something new, uh, learning a little bit about the local culture, and we were lucky enough last night to go out to a lovely Russian restaurant and eat some wonderful food and drink some vodka, thankfully not too much, uh, I'm, although I'm sure that's going to come, and uh, you know, experience something a little bit different, and, and what are the sport gives you those opportunities not just every four years but you know we're fortunate enough uh, to go on tour with the Socceroos when they play the qualifiers so we've been to all sorts of crazy places Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, (laughs) Iran uh, you know all over Asia and all over the world it's just an incredible experience. What's your finest memory of those
0: moments those moments those epiphany moments where you think there's only one thing that could have brought me here and it's
2: football and I can't believe I've just seen or heard or had that experience. Uh, I think it has to be Kyrgyzstan, uh, August 2015, the, f- the very first game of this qualifying series that Australia played. Uh, and we went to Bishkek, at really not knowing what to expect. We knew it was a former Soviet republic, uh, knew it was quite a poor country. And I remember uh, the actual game itself was a very basic stadium, uh, an old-fashioned bowl without any cover at all in terms of roofs or stands. And uh, we got there, and myself and Andy Harper, we were commentating at the back of one of these stands where they'd put a very basic scaffold structure with a couple of wooden floorboards across. And our Russian director said to me, uh, do you tend to stand up and move about when you commentate? And I said, well, you know, it depends on the moment. He said, right, well, if you do that, you'll probably fall through into the stand below. <laughs> so Andy and I stood stock still for 90 minutes. But but more than that was, uh, this was the biggest game in their history. So the capacity, I think, was 15,000, and they were pouring over the walls like ants to get in. They broke the security cordon. they had to be there. There was so much passion for their team and for the game. And in the background, to top it all off, we had... the Alatu mountain ranges some of the most beautiful scenery I've ever seen and I remember just looking around and thinking my God, this is a great way to earn a living. And it was. It was fantastic. And that's the thing about the World Cup. It reminds us that the, the reach of the
0: game is beyond our fairly linear look at it. So we look at it, say, from the A-League and to the Premier League and beyond to Europe. And I know those countries dominate and those players have uh, a stature that they deserve because we, we see the best players in the world coming from those, those countries and those leagues. But there are stories <coughs> beyond that that are off-Broadway in a sense that we don't know about that technically and skill-wise uh, also systems and the desire to play and win is just as deep and as rich that get shown here, get showcased here and remind us that our world is not
2: the only world in which the game exists. Absolutely. Uh, and I remember a classic case in point was uh, a player played for Kyrgyzstan in that game called Antonin Zemlyanukin. Who was a left winger who played, I think, in the Russian Premier League, and I'd never heard of him before, and he was fantastic. Uh, So there are players that uh, you know catch your eye sometimes. You wow, you know, he's incredible, this guy. Um, But but more than that, it's it's you know, it's a combination of both the football and the off field. Mm -hmm experiences and again without wishing to get too ranty or political you know sometimes we we tend to focus our gaze inward rather too much in Australia or if we do look outside our borders we look to England we look to parts of Europe we look to South America really Asia is our doorstep and we have to connect with that an awful lot more.
0: My sense is that we really need an Asian or an African country to break through to break that nexus between the Europeans and the South Americans who have dominated the game at this level for so very long, and that's the sort of the evolution of the game that needs to come next. I don't think it's going to happen at this World Cup. I can't see it happening, which is a shame. I desperately want to see an African nation in a semi final. I love African football, and yeah. I don't get to see very much of it. When I do, I'm just entranced by it. I would love to see it. It still seems that the European and South American stranglehold on the elite international level
2: uh, is going to remain. Yeah, well, I think it was Pele that said he thought an African nation would win the World Cup before the year 2000. Obviously, that didn't happen, uh, and they seem, uh, at the moment at least, as far away as ever. I don't know why that should be, because as you rightly point out, they've got some of the world's top players, some incredible athletes, Uh, but it seems that they're they're less than the sum of their parts. I think a lot of it is to do with organisation and, and unfortunately, money. They tend to fall out a lot over money. Now, I'll just give you a very quick example, Uh, and this wasn't a World Cup, but I, I actually reported for the BBC on the 1998 African Cup of Nations in Burkina Faso and that was a hell of a tournament uh, and the first, one of the first games I watched was Ghana against Tunisia And Ghana absolutely ripped Tunisia apart. Uh, They had some wonderful players back in the day. This was 98. So, Neil Lamptey, Peter Raffori-Kwai, Tony Yeboah, um, Stephen Appiah. I think he might have been a bit later, to be fair. But but these were a really talented group of players. And they won that game 2-0. It should have been 6. And I remember thinking, this team's going to win this quite easily. They were superb. And they lost their next two games and went home because they fell out both with the coach and over the, the the financial bonuses that they were due to get from the Ghanaian FA. And I think that's all too often the, the, the case, unfortunately. I'm not saying it's the only reason, uh, but I think that's one of the reasons why. In terms of Asia, yeah, you're right. I mean... You know, as a region, we're miles off at the moment. Japan are probably, uh, you know, the best team in the region with, with the best opportunity, and they've certainly got the, the systems in place to produce a World Cup-winning team in the men's, as they have done in the women's already. Um, but you know, football's tough. Two hundred plus countries, and most of them have it as their national sport. So. Yeah.
0: And so in a way We've become a little bit Blase about being here Four consecutive World Cups As Australians We kind of feel Well in that last Qualification period It felt like A sense of entitlement had, Had sort of seeped into Into football culture In Australia Like we We Believe that we had a right to have a spot there and of course those of us with long enough memories know how hard that is, um, we don't have a right to be at the World Cup and that's why being here, you have to enjoy every moment. It might be our last one for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so when you're here, you've got to soak it all up because you know, these moments don't come very often.
2: Well, we underestimate, uh, you know, how difficult qualifying for a World Cup is. And again, as I said earlier, we're fortunate enough to, to follow the soccerers home in a way. And you know, that some of the travel to get to these places in qualification, like Kyrgyzstan, was difficult to get to. When you get there, you you find unfamiliar conditions, either in terms of the weather or in terms of altitude. You don't have a long preparation time. The pitch was bumpy. You have a hostile crowd. You know, all those things go against you. And also, there, there are little tricks. That are played along the way, uh, you know, training grounds not ready, coaches that turn up late, you know, people banging drums outside hotel. These are the little one percenters that make it uh, you know difficult sometimes for teams to get through. So we should enjoy it, we should celebrate it. And also, I do think sometimes we underestimate uh, how good some of our players are. You know, I, I see some of the commentary around Aaron Moy. Uh, you know, so, and he's one of our better players, obviously. Uh, you know, Aaron's—he's not this, he's not that. He's—he's he's a good player, but bleh. you know, the journey that Aaron's been on to play in one of the top leagues in the world with Huddersfield Town, um, and to play alongside some of the best players in the world and against some of the best players in the world—it's damn difficult. Um, You know, with respect, this isn't Aussie rules. This isn't Rugby League where we're just playing against each other. We're playing against the rest of the world here. So a lot of our lads have done really well to get to the level they're at. Uh, And okay, they they might not be Ronaldo or, or Messi or Neymar, but that doesn't mean they're not good players and they deserve to be here. We do need to talk
0: about the difficult stuff too. You and I both love football, but we both, I think, have a problem with the FIFA World Cup as an event politically economically, um, industrially, yet we're here. I find it difficult to justify. I know the next World Cup I won't be going for those reasons. I mean, that's my line literally in the sand. Uh, but how do we how do we sort of <clears throat> juxtapose and accommodate those mixed feelings about our love for the game, our, our love for the festival of football when it brings people together because it is truly, it does have a magic about it, and I don't use that word lightly, and the hard politics and economics that go along with staging a World Cup and the organisation that runs it. It's difficult, Simon.
2: It is difficult. And <clears throat> Excuse me. Look, I'm with you. I, I won't be in Qatar in 2022. That's my own personal protest. Um, I think you can look at it two ways. First of all, you know, we, we can't deny that wherever the World Cup is held, it, it brings an awful lot of pleasure to an awful lot of people. So that's the pure football side of things. And we have to recognise, uh, accept, embrace, enjoy that. At the same time, we as journalists and people who work in the media have to do our job, and that is to try and hold those in power to account. Uh, and that just doesn't mean at FIFA level. I, it, I mean, in, you know, at national level, at local level as well. That, that's what our job is. So, uh, providing we do that, <clears throat> then maybe we can, you know, come to these events and, and enjoy them with a slightly clearer conscience. Uh, but I, I know what you mean. Uh, this one's a bit tricky for me as well because I think there were things that were done uh, to in the awarding of these two World Cups, which as we know came in 2010, uh, that, that weren't right. Um, now Russia's probably escaped scrutiny a little bit because all the focus has been on Qatar, but there were things about this bit that weren't right as well, um, underlined by the fact that when the Garcia reports came to Russia, um, they said, oh, sorry, all of our stuff is uh, on computers that were on loan and they've been taken back and now been destroyed. You know, the old uh, my dog ate my homework uh, excuse, which is a load of rubbish. Um, but has FIFA reformed since the days of Sepp Blatter? No. No. In some ways, it might even be worse than ever. Uh, And we are duty-bound as as journalists and as lovers of the game to try and hold those people to account. Are we doing that well enough at the moment? Probably not. Are we allowed to do that well enough? Probably not.
0: It's it's an interesting point, isn't it? We're in a way... Lovers of the game, but we don't want to become enablers of the corruption and the poison in, in the bloodstream of the game, and that's a really difficult road to to uh, to travel.
2: The, you know, there the are commercial interests as well that constantly cross over. Um, you know, for example, I work for Fox Sports, which has a commercial uh, interest and uh, investment in uh, football in Australia and to an extent overseas as well. Uh, so you're constantly pushing up against those hard boundaries, and it's difficult. You know, it's it's hard for uh, people to hear criticism of uh, a supposed commercial partner but i think if you've got any integrity or honesty about you you have to do it because y- you can't just sweep this stuff under the carpet i mean th- this isn't about a few dollars changing hands and you know a bit of backslapping along the way you know th- this is systemic corruption in some places this is You know, workers from some of the poorest parts of the world who are living miserable lives and in some cases losing their lives constructing football stadiums for us to go and enjoy the game of our choice in. So, you know, we have to be mindful of that and we have to continue to uh, report those facts. And wherever possible, try and hold the people who make those decisions to account.
0: Do you reckon we ever get to a stage where there'd be a f- an ethical audit in the bidding process? Uh-huh. Well,
2: there should be. <laughs> there should be. In fact... You know, I was in London a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I I co-hosted a a, a conference on that, well, not just that topic, but a lot of topics to do with FIFA and sport and corruption and integrity. Uh, And one of the speakers was uh, a guy called Jeffrey Robertson, QC, who, of course, is the human rights lawyer, very very famous around the world. And that was his suggestion that, you know, we should, uh, in all bidding nations, have as part of the technical report a human rights audit of that particular country. And it should therefore be taken into consideration when uh, World Cups are decided and, and the hostings are awarded. Is that going to happen? Is that realistic? Probably not. Because the bottom line is, it's about money. We all know that.
0: What sort of a fan are you? We're going to see it in the stands this time round. You'll be there. What sort of a fan are you? Are you shouty? Mouthy?
2: Um, when it's Man City I'm very shouty and mouthy uh, yes I am I mean I'm, I'm a very passionate football supporter uh, but particularly when it comes to my team because obviously I've grown up with them they're in my blood um, uh, obviously with Australia it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one for me it's a different one um, I was going to say, how do you feel about it? Because you've been in Australia for over
0: a decade yeah, now, yeah. and you, your allegiance—I know you well enough to know that your your heart still beats for, for Albion, in a sense. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you're still an Englishman at heart. Yeah. But what's what's the relationship like with Australia when you when we see the green and gold out there? My, I instantly feel a deep As and abiding love. How does it feel for you?
2: As you should, by the way. Um, I have to say. It, it was difficult in the early stages. I find it a little bit easier now. Um, in fact, in, in my first few years, I found it weird saying we when I referred to the Australian team because it just it didn't sound natural for me. And I felt as though I was in some way being a little bit disingenuous by, by saying that. I feel much more comfortable with saying we now. And when I say we, I, I, I tend to use the sort of the royal we in terms of it's, it's we the game. In Australia, and you know, I represent—not represent the game, but I work in the game. Uh, I have a, a very deep vested interest in the success of the game, not just because of my job, but because, you know, I've become sort of evangelical about it in many ways. I, I, you know, I'm passionate about the game in Australia. Now, I, I can't say that. I have the same love for the national team as probably you do because you were born there and it's your birthright, the same as mine is with England. But that doesn't mean I don't want them to do well. I do, very much so. I will be supporting Australia at this World Cup. You probably won't see me dancing up and down and... You know, throwing my shirt in—that sort of stuff. On, but but I want them to do well. Um, the tricky bit would be if they actually got to play England. That would be very difficult. That
0: would be a great day. We're all hankering for that moment. Uh, you and I, you and I both have another shared passion. Uh, it is for, for heavy metal. Are we not in the land of? the die-hard heavy yes.
2: metal fan here in Russia? <laughs> yes, I think we are. Um, in fact, well, on the way in, I, I did ask our Russian taxi driver for some kino, uh, the Russian heavy metal band, and he sort of looked, I think he was a bit too young for that, so he looked to me agog. Uh, but, yeah, they do like their metal here. And I saw, um, in fact, Eastern Europe in particular, uh, I saw in Budapest where we were for the Australian Friendly, there were adverts all over the place for Iron Maiden back on tour, so I'm really disappointed <laughs> I didn't get to see them again. What would be more spectacular, the World Cup in Russia or Iron Maiden in Moscow? Oh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. But given that I've seen Iron Maiden a couple of times, I'll have to say the World Cup in Russia because I haven't seen that yet.
0: (laughs) Mate, we'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Uh, Look forward to catching up with you across the the World Cup road trip uh, as we hit the road and uh, enjoy the sights, the sounds and the football in Russia. Salute, my friend. Salute. And we have,
2: we're playing gig together, you and I, Francis.
0: We are. We're forming our own band, aren't we? We're, we're getting on stage in, in Samara. We're going on tour in Russia. <laughs> we're going to rock the house. We're big in Russia, Simon. Good to see you, mate. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Simon Hill, part of the World Cup road trip with the Green and Gold Army here in Moscow with us ahead of the opening game of the campaign. And uh, we spoke about Hungary just there. Simon was just in Budapest. Well, Tony Wilson is still there. He's on the trail of the story of Franz Pushkas, who, of course, came to Australia as a coach. Coach South Melbourne Hellas back in the 80s and the 90s. Tony's making a film about that, and I think he's been hunting down some Puskas tales. Let's catch up with him.
1: (music) Hello, Francis Roadtrippers. I had an amazing day today when I visited St. Stephen's Basilica. And I I went there for a reason. I'm making a documentary about Ferenc Pushkas and the fact that he came out to the NSL and coached the South Melbourne Hellas in 1989 they ended up winning the 1991 championship And he's a He's a, he's a hero figure um, at South Melbourne But of course he's a, he's a national figure Here in Hungary He scored 83 goals in 85 internationals He, um, he I think he scored over 500 goals In his amazing senior football career um, Star of the 54 World Cup That went so badly for Hungary um, In the end uh, And also I think he won an Olympic gold medal in 52 So you know, just a, a a figure of the highest magnitude in football, and he ends up uh, in our uh, remote little Australian backwater in 1989, coaching South Melbourne, and and we've been speaking to the great players that were uh, involved in that team. Uh, uh, we've spoken to Ange Postacoglu and Paul Trimboli and others, and and so I thought I'm going to try to visit his grave, and so I go out to um, St Stephen's Basilica, and it's a church of the european style it's a very very grand place i can tell you i was sitting there with all the tourists staring up at the huge domed roof and um, it was absolutely pumping with people uh, and i said to the security guy uh, i'm a south melbourne hellas fan uh, we love ferenc pushkas can i visit him it was like i got issued a, a password and he goes over to another guy and he goes ferenc pushkas south melbourne hellas and suddenly um, a man says come with me and, and I'm being walked I'm walked across the marble floors of St Stephen's and we go to a, a roped off area and then open a side door and I'm being walked down into the crypt and when we reach the bottom uh, there's just an expanse of white marble and little chapels off to the sides and the names of all the greats in Hungarian history there's there's um, prime ministers and uh, I don't know if they've got prime ministers There's presidents, and there's kings, and there's royalty, and there's religious leaders, and and, uh, Eugenie, uh, he takes me to the sporting section, and and he shows me some smaller plaques dedicated to medal winners at the Olympics that have got the Olympic rings uh, on their plaques. So we go past some of the other great players of that era who are buried under there as well, and then with a great deal of fanfare, Eugenie turned me around and said, here it is, the grave of the great Ferenc Pushkas. And he shows me the wall that's dedicated to Ferenc, and there's a plaque there with a thank you from the Hungarian people. And I got to sit there for a moment and contemplate the burial spot of the man that we've dedicated the last year to making a documentary about. Um, and his wife Elizabeth is buried there too, and their daughter. Um, and yeah, it was, it was quite a profound moment and a, a moment where the code word of South Melbourne Hellas uh, managed to take me out of the, uh, the normal tourist run and into the crypt of St. Stephen's Basilica. Uh, football, it is an amazing game.
0: Tony Wilson on the road in Hungary searching for the story of Franz Pushkas. Simon Hill before that telling us about his World Cup love affair and we're only just beginning. This thing hasn't even started and we're already rolling. Hey, thanks for being part of the World Cup road trip. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes or on your favourite platform for for podcasts to let other people know about it. We'd really appreciate that. Tell your friends about it if you're into the World Cup or just want to know about what it's like to roll around Russia and have a good time and we'll catch you on the next edition of the World Cup Road Trip. Bye for now.